Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 81, cover story. To continue the history of surface chemistry in the 1960s through 1970s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet to view interesting surface structures. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In episode 67, I began to tell the story of surface chemistry from ancient times through the 1950s. We continue the story, but now, finally, we can describe the structure of clean surfaces uncontaminated by air, because by this time, equipment to extract practically all the air out of a special chamber to hold the sample was developed, in order to reach so-called ultra-high vacuum. This is a pressure of less than a trillionth of typical atmospheric pressure, and to cover a surface with one single layer of atoms at this pressure takes about one hour. The idea is to start with a clean, uncontaminated surface, and then introduce different molecules to sit on that surface and see what they do. Scientists had known for half a century that many substances crystallize into specific repeatable arrangements of atoms or molecules since the Braggs proved this using x-rays. For table salt, sodium chloride, for example, the sodium ions and chloride ions endlessly repeat throughout the crystal in a predictable array until you get to the end of the crystal. And what happens at the surface of a crystal? Well, that's the question. It seems weird that ions with electrical charges would stick out into space and not react immediately, or even just rearrange themselves at the surface to cancel out the electrical charges. And that is precisely what surface chemists want to know. What is the molecular structure of a substance where the real chemistry happens at the surface? This is where the substance will touch other substances and react. The hard part is that you are looking at only one section of the material, the surface, compared to maybe 10 million or 100 million parts of the rest of the substance. Therefore, you need a way to look only at the surface atoms and not the rest of the sample. We will talk about how surface chemists can do this, but first let's talk about the surfaces themselves. At a surface, the atoms feel the chemical bonding of all the underlying atoms beneath the surface, but the electrical interaction stops above the surface because there are no more atoms above the surface. So what does the surface do? The atoms readjust to the new surface-influenced orbitals. That readjustment can be two types. The atoms can relax. That means they just move slightly, usually inward to the substance below. The bonds shift a bit from the first layer to the second layer, and then all the underlying layers have the typical bond lengths and angles. The atoms can reconstruct 
meaning they shift a lot and form new or unusual patterns at the surface. This is more than just shifting slightly in relaxation. Instead, they construct a totally new array, which may be surprising, but the idea is that the electron's orbitals still rearrange and the atoms follow. The reconstruction can stay over a temperature range and then completely rearrange if the sample's surface gets a lot hotter or colder. In the 1960s and 1970s, the first substances to be examined for surface structure were generally metals like silver, aluminum, cobalt, copper, nickel, iron, tungsten, rhodium, and platinum. Other substances that were studied included salts such as magnesium oxide, sodium oxide, nickel oxide, molybdenum disulfide, zinc oxide, and titanium selenide. And with the rising importance of the semiconductor industry, which makes transistors and integrated circuits on flat sections of semiconductors, some semiconductor surfaces were studied, such as silicon and gallium arsenide. This, of course, brings up another complication, which I want to simplify for you as best as I can, and that is the question of which exact surface of any substance do you study? You can look at a crystal in one surface plane, or slice the crystal diagonally, or at all sorts of different angles. Each of those angles brings up a different relative structure at the surface, so you have to specify this in your experiments. Sometimes you want to examine the effect of atomic steps at the surface of a crystal, so you examine a crystal cut at a very slight angle from the plane so that you have a specific number of steps along the array. Say, every 20th atom is at a step, and the rest of the atoms are on a terrace. The structure looks a bit like terraced gardens on a hillside with regular steps between the terraces. All of these different slices through a crystal will affect your experimental results. Each different slice may reconstruct its atoms at the surface differently. With all these complications in mind, let's see what the researchers discovered in the 1960s and 1970s. Some metals change little from the inside, the bulk, to the surface atoms. Certain crystal faces of aluminum, platinum, nickel, rhodium, cadmium, and beryllium don't change. But some metal surfaces contract inward, such as a particular face of aluminum, molybdenum, and tungsten anywhere between 5 to 15 percent. Certain materials do reconstruct dramatically at the surface layer. Some surfaces of iridium, platinum, and gold rearrange over five lengths of atoms. A particular surface of silicon and also germanium, both semiconductors, causes the top layer of atoms to shift together in pairs, explained by bonding between these pairs of atoms. Another very cool reconstruction of a different slice through silicon makes a complicated and beautiful rearrangement over a 7-unit cell by 7-unit cell array underlying the surface. A unit cell is the smallest repeating volume pattern in the crystal structure. (music) 
So to do chemistry, we have to know what the surface looks like. In the same way, we need to know the spatial arrangement of atoms in separate molecules to explain how a reaction proceeds. And how did surface chemists of the time figure out these structures? One basic technique is diffraction of electrons. Recall that Louis de Broglie in the 1920s realized that electrons are particles and waves simultaneously. As waves, the electrons then can behave like light waves and reinforce each other or cancel each other out as they pass through a grating. Davison and Germer demonstrated this in 1927. For surface scientists, the grating turns out to be the distance between layers of atoms in a crystal, just like X-rays of William Bragg during World War I. You need to choose the energy of your electrons carefully, and that turns out to be between, say, 10 and 500 electron volts. These are called low-energy electrons, and the technique for scientists is low-energy electron diffraction, often abbreviated into LEED or LEED. You shoot a beam of these low-energy electrons at your sample. They only penetrate the top layer, the surface, and then bounce back onto a large phosphorescent screen made of zinc oxide surrounding the electron gun. The image, if your system works right, is a nice array of bright spots from which you back-calculate the arrangement of the surface atoms. Lester Germer himself revitalized this technique in 1960 after improved vacuum techniques in the 1950s allowed better electron beams to operate and diffraction patterns to be observed. J.J. Lander at Bell Laboratories a few years later improved the system to what is used today. We have already talked about electron microscopes, which at the time couldn't see individual atoms, but they could resolve steps and terraces on sloping surfaces. We also mentioned field ion microscopes, which gave the first actual images of atomic positions on surfaces back in 1955. But field ion microscopes require a large electric field and only a limited number of metals with high melting points can be used, like tungsten, tantalum, or iridium. Another interesting technique surface chemists used at this time was photoelectron spectroscopy, whether with ultraviolet light or X-ray light. So, you zap the surface with ultraviolet light, and the surface atoms, because of the photoelectric effect, eject electrons from their outer orbitals. You can collect the electrons and analyze their energies to determine what elements are on your surface. Likewise, with X-rays, you zap the surface with an X-ray beam and the atoms eject an electron from their inner orbitals. Again, collect the electrons and see what energies they have and deduce the elements on the surface. X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy was invented in 1957 by Kai Siegbahn, a Swedish physicist. Ultraviolet photoelectron spectroscopy came along in 1961 by Soviet scientist Fyodor Vilesov and in 1962 by British scientist David Turner. 
A technique often used by surface chemists at this time is called Auger, A-U-G-E-R, electron spectroscopy. Multiple things happen here. You zap the surface with higher energy electrons, say, several thousand electron volts. The electrons hit surface atoms and kick out electrons from inner orbitals. This makes a positively charged atom, and higher orbital electrons in that atom drop down into the empty orbital. Sometimes the second electron dropping down releases its energy to another outer orbital electron. You can collect these final Auger electrons, analyze their energy, and determine not just what elements there are, but how the elements are bonded to other atoms. This method was discovered by Lisa Meitner in 1922 and Pierre Auger separately in 1923, but ignored till the 1950s. If you want to see what contaminant atoms or molecules are on a surface, you can use thermal desorption spectroscopy. You heat your sample, already covered with some surface layer of molecules, and gradually the molecules evaporate off, they desorb from the surface. You can measure the pressure change in the chamber as the amount of gas increases, and the temperature change over time. Via calculus, you can work out the energy needed to kick off that type of molecule from that type of surface, and get some thermodynamics of the reaction. Paul Redhead, a British-Canadian surface scientist, popularized this method in the 1960s. Here is yet another method using light. Suppose you have a material to study which is transparent to infrared light. If you form the sample into the right shape, like a narrow strip, and shine the infrared light in at the correct angle, it can bounce back and forth between the upper and lower surfaces of the strip of material many times, and then exit at the other end where you collect the light. This can be uninteresting if the sample is transparent to that light. But suppose you coat the sample with a single atomic layer of reactant. The molecules on the surface react with the sample, and maybe those surface products absorb light. During the internal bouncing back and forth, certain wavelengths of infrared light are absorbed by the surface products, and you can collect a complete spectrum of the reactants and products on the surface and figure out what actual chemistry goes on right at that surface. This technique uses the property of total internal reflection, just like fiber optic cables transmit light, to amplify the spectroscopic signals from a surface. The method was brought to practical use by N.J. Harrick in the 1950s and 1960s, and he became famous in the world of surface science when he founded his company in 1969 called Harrick Scientific Products, selling equipment to do such infrared spectroscopy via total internal reflection on surfaces. There were more techniques involving shooting electrons, ions, or even whole atoms of helium at surfaces to analyze them, but those are some of the primary techniques surface chemists used. The basic goal, of course, is to look at only the surface atoms and ignore those atoms underneath. 
and these were the popular methods used in our point in the history of chemistry. The issue, though, for chemists of the era was that these techniques were good for low pressures of gas atoms and molecules hitting a clean, orderly, crystalline surface. As one of the leaders in the field of surface chemistry of the time, Gabor Summerjai notes, however, quote, Most natural surface phenomena, however, occur in the more common chemical environments of atmospheric or higher pressure or at the solid-liquid interface, unquote. That is, in real life, we have air all around us, or commonly water, and that water or air covers a surface. Or even, what happens at the surface of a liquid exposed to air? That's real life, not artificially prepared surfaces. How can we study that scenario? Such surface chemistry will have to wait another couple of decades in our chemical history. In the meantime, because this is a history of chemistry, let's talk briefly about two chief surface chemists of the era. The first I've already quoted, Gabor Summerjai. Summerjai, a Hungarian-American, was born in Budapest in 1935, and, as a Jew, was in grave danger when the Nazis took over. His mother asked for help from the Swedish diplomat, Raoul Wallenberg, who got him his mother and his sister, Swedish passports. His father was deported to a death camp, but survived the war. Little more than a decade later, Samarjai was a student at the University of Budapest when the Soviets invaded Hungary in 1956. He was an activist in the Hungarian uprising, and so politically was in danger again. Therefore, he fled to Austria with his fiancée, where a chain of contacts in Vienna led him to the USA. He enrolled in graduate school at the University of California in Berkeley, where he got his Ph.D. For several years in the early 1960s, he was a scientist at IBM, but then went back to the university as a professor. Summerjai's main chemical interest was in platinum surfaces and platinum is a known catalyst for many reactions. Among his discoveries was that, on these surfaces, it's not the regular array of atoms itself that catalyzes organic reactions, but at the defects, where the atomic arrays don't meet exactly right, where the fun stuff happens. Almost the same age as Summerjai is another towering figure in surface chemistry, German Gerhard Ertl. He got his doctorate in Munich in 1965. His interests also include platinum surfaces, specifically carbon monoxide on platinum, but ammonia reactions on iron surfaces too, which we've heard of, the all-important Bosch-Haber process to make ammonia from the early 20th century. He found that some reactions on surfaces oscillate between two states. We will talk about oscillating reactions later in this series. With all his work, he won the Nobel Prize in 2007. By the late 1970s, these researchers and others were beginning to divine what precisely happens 
when molecules meet a solid surface, but we will revisit this topic in a later episode in the 1980s. In our next episode, we revisit a form of carbon we mentioned before, diamond, and a different way of producing it invented in the 1950s but perfected in the 1980s. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.